Well, good morning. It is uh, good to see you guys. We're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, if you guys will turn there, will be verses 12 to 18. Uh, as you guys turn there, I'll, I'll just tell you guys, I, I am amped up and excited about this morning's passage. I think uh, this passage in the book of Philippians is probably one of the most profoundly practical and, and maybe revolutionary that you guys will come across as we walk through this book. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you guys are there, follow along with me. Verses uh, 12 to 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Father God, I give you great thanks for your word. I thank you that you have revealed yourself, that we have record of who you are and of what you call us to. Father, I pray this morning as we wrestle and as we dive deep into your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come along and that you teach us. I pray this morning that this passage would flip our worlds upside down, that we would get a sense of what the spiritual life looks like and how it functions in a way that we've never seen it before. I pray that we get a sense particularly of how you work and how you move in us in a way that maybe we've never seen it before. And all the areas and all the struggles that we have in our spiritual lives, Lord, I pray that tonight or this morning and in this passage, Lord, I pray that you'd come and that you'd speak to those things. Those areas that we struggle, those areas that we wonder, and we wonder, how in the world am I supposed to pull this thing off? I pray that you'd speak to us this morning, that you move in ways beyond our anticipation. I pray that you'd allow me not to get the way of what you want to do this morning, um, through your word and through this time. May you move as you see fit in each of our lives and give us hearts that are responsive and sensitive to you and to your ways, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, uh, for us guys, there's probably a few things we love in life or hate in life more than being uh, and appearing absolutely clueless, right? Uh, and especially if it were ever to occur in front of a girl that we have an interest in, uh, we seem to kind of really try to protect our image and our presentation of reality. And so uh, it was senior year, spring break for me uh, on a road trip to uh, Grand Canyon. And on the way back from this road trip, we had uh, eight of my closest friends in two different cars. And uh, on the way back home in the middle of the desert of Arizona, we had a little bit of an issue. Uh, I was driving an old school Cadillac that was just awesome, all right? And all of a sudden, the engine completely died in this thing. Just completely, in a sense, shut off, all right? Uh, power steering went away, and all of a sudden, every light on the dashboard lit up like a Vegas slot machine, all right? I had no clue what was going on, all right? I remember all I could do really, and all I could really fathom at the time was just, to, in a sense, to pull the car off to the side of the road. So we got off onto the highway. At this point, everyone in the car is panicking. Everyone's kind of concerned. And so me and my buddy, as guys, do what we always do, and we just try to present and control the situation. And so we tell the ladies, hey, we got this. We know what's going on. Not a big deal. We'll just get out, pop the hood, uh, and then we'll have it taken care of, all right? Uh, and so we get out and we pop the hood, which really for us who are not car guys, which is what I'm not, all right? Uh, popping the hood is really the, the first step you take that makes you feel better about the situation. But really, popping the hood really only further validates the fact that you have no idea what you're looking at and no idea even what you're looking for, all right? But at least for us, popping the hood created a little bit of a visual shield between us and the girls so that they could not see that we were absolutely panicking, all right? We were out in the middle of the desert in Arizona with no clue why the car is not working and no clue where we're headed next, all right? Uh, and so we're out and also with, uh, not in earshot uh, of the girls so they can't hear our conversation. So I turn to my buddy and I say, hey, 
do you have any idea what's going on? Which he says, no, you, no clue. All right. So, so again, we do what any set of guys do. We just kind of hem and haw and buy some time so that it seems like the girls think that we're, you know, fixing it. All right. Uh, meanwhile, we're just in a sense talking about the trip and about what we're going to do when we get home and where we want to eat. All right. Uh, but completely at a loss of what we're going to do. All right. And then it strikes us, maybe in a sense, we should just call our dad, all right? So uh, we asked one of the girls for her cell phone. We tell her that we need to, uh, in a sense, call the dealership with a technical question. Don't worry about it. We got it, though. <laughs> we call our dads. We're like, Dad, I have no idea what's going on. How do I fix this, all right? Uh, the dad who owned the car actually told us that the, 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 the car actually had a kill switch, that, that if it sensed that something had gone wrong, it would engage a kill switch, and the entire car would just die, all right? Which is exactly what happened, all right? So the engine just dies. I lose all power steering. Lights go up like a Vegas slot machine. And it's just dead. Dead as a doorknob, all right, on the side of the road. And so all we had to do was just flip and re-engage the kill switch, take it off, and the car was back up like good as new. And so we get back in the car, having handled the situation, right? Uh, we've maintained our dignity. We may have sacrificed our integrity a little bit along the way. Uh, but we were off and running and good to go again, all right? And I was thinking to myself of that this uh, week and thinking that as many of us who maybe feel completely at a loss when it comes to our cars, and that when something goes wrong, we really have no idea what to do. Maybe we still call mom and dad. Maybe we just try to get it to an, a dealership or something. Uh, as many of us may feel that way about cars, I think a lot of us at times may feel the same way even about our own spiritual lives. Uh, that even though we may have some greater familiarity with this whole thing called the spiritual life, that really when trouble ensues or when things aren't going like we planned, we really have no idea really what to do. Uh, If in a sense someone were to pop the hood of our spiritual life, we, we may not even be able to identify the engine that drives the whole thing. If someone were to walk us through the dashboard of our spiritual life, for many of us, I'd submit, we may not even know what warning lights to look for. And if a warning light hit it, we may not even know what it signified or, or what we do with that. If there were gauges on a dashboard, we really wouldn't even know it necessarily how to measure or be watching for really the health of our spiritual life and what's going on. I think what Paul is going to do for this this morning as an auto mechanic in Philippians 2 is he's going to, in a sense, pop the hood. And he's going to give us a simple how-to, a simple diagnostic run-through, really, as to the engine and the dashboard of our spiritual life. I think he's going to highlight for you and I exactly how our spiritual life is driven, what propels it forward. He's also going to show us, in a sense, two basic warning lights on the dashboard of our spiritual life that highlight for us trouble and what we do when those things get lit. And then lastly, I think he's going to show us one gauge, one marker of health, one, one clue that can kind of show us exactly where we are in our spiritual lives. And if you're here this morning and you're in a place where you've thought, man, my heart, in a sense, if it has a kill switch, it feels like it's been engaged. If you're here this morning, you've thought, man, in terms of my spiritual life, I just, at this point in time, just don't have a lot of desire to read the word uh, I'm sitting here during worship songs that are awesome, but my heart just doesn't seem to engage. Uh, if that's you this morning, I'll tell you, I think Philippians 2 is right up your alley. If you're here this morning and your battle with sin continues to ruin and control you and wreck you, I think Philippians 2 is for you. I don't know where you are this morning, whether you just find a heart that just doesn't seem to engage or whether you're in a sense off on a road somewhere spiritually in a sense wrecked wondering, hey, how do I get out of this ditch or how do I retrieve and get back on the highway in a sense? I tell you, I think Philippians 2 is as revolutionary and as helpful as any passage that you and I can find. I think the passage we looked at last week about Jesus's deity and humanity is profoundly theological. I think this passage in verses 12 to 18 is profoundly practical. Not about what Christ has done, but this morning I think about what Christ is doing in our lives now. I think this passage, and I will tell you the truth in it, were probably as revolutionary for me in college as any other set of truths of anything that I ran across in college. 
So I'm really hoping and really expecting of what I think God is wanting to do as we walk through this passage. This thing is revolutionary. So notice as we start out, really, I think Paul, in a sense, pops the hood for us. And I think he, in a sense, starts us out with the engine. I think he's going to focus us in verses 12 and 13, really, on the engine of our spiritual life that drives us forward. What is it that, in a sense, propels you and I forward in the midst of all that God has called us to and called us to avoid and called us to pursue in the midst of all the commands of the Bible? How in the world do we maneuver and find the engine to drive us through all of that? I think Paul is going to really land us in on that in verses 12 and 13. And as he does it, he's going to, in a sense, show us, in a sense, the Philippians' previous pattern. Notice he says in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, I think before he gets to a dominating command that comes in verse 12, before he gets there, he's going to, in a sense, lay out for them a track record, really, of obedience. He's going to say, just as you've always obeyed, you have an incredible track record of obedience, and you've had that whether I've been present with you or whether I've left someone behind to take care of you. Whether I was present or absent, you guys have been walking with Jesus and obeying that which he's called you to in marvelous fashion. And I think it really stands out because I think in a lot of contexts, whenever someone leaves behind a substitute, typically we don't respond in the best way possible, right? Uh, Your conduct in response to a professor is so different than your response to their substitute. Uh, I had a great, uh, one of my best friends throughout college as he graduated and waited on med school. He spent a semester uh, substitute teaching here in Bryan College Station. And for a guy who was so mild-mannered, patient, and gentle, Every day he would come home and beg and beseech the Lord for his vengeance and his justice to rain down on junior high kids, all right? Um, you know, they just, because he was a substitute and because he was temporary, they had just given him the hardest time. And so I think what Paul is saying is whether I've been present or whether you've had a substitute, man, you guys have just been trucking forward and that's awesome. In fact, he's going to give them a giant command here that comes in verse 12, but he's going to lay out before that command a context or a pattern of obedience. And notice the command that comes in verse 12. He says, Just as you have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. This is the dominant command of verse 12, and really of the whole passage, work out your salvation. What exactly is Paul calling them to do here? What does it mean for them to work out their salvation? What would that have looked like? What would that have sounded like? What would that have meant to them? How would they have heard it? I think as Paul is calling them to this command, I think the backdrop of their track record highlights exactly what he's wanting for them. It says, just as you have always obeyed, now work out your salvation. I think ultimately he's calling them to obedience, to a work of obedience as their salvation continues on. And notice, I want to highlight for you guys, as you talk about this salvation, exactly notice what it does not say. Paul does not say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. Giant difference. What's the distinction? To work for your salvation means that you can merit eternal life, that you can do enough good things and merit the approval of God. And I think Paul has never said that. It is not saying that right here. I think he's saying something entirely different. In fact, I think it's really helpful if you understand that there's actually three phases or stages of salvation. I'm going to throw you guys some theological terminology here, but I think it's going to be really helpful. Uh, There's three, in a sense, stages of salvation, all right? The first we refer to often is justification. Justification refers to an event in the past in which a person trusts in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. On the basis of faith in what, not what they've done, but what Jesus has done, God looks upon them and declares them forgiven or, in a sense, not guilty. The picture is often of a courtroom setting in which our conduct and our deeds, in which many times is a complete uh, rebellion against God, is presented. And yet in the courtroom setting, as for a person who's trusted in Jesus, God looks at that person and says, you're not guilty. 
When I look upon you, when I cast a verdict on you because of your faith in Jesus, you are not guilty in my eyes. And in fact, Jesus Christ will, will in a sense absorb the penalty for our crimes and our transgressions on the cross. And he stands in our place. And that is a point in time in the past. And yet the second stage of salvation we often refer to as sanctification. It is a stage that is really what you are in right now if you know Jesus Christ. It is not an event in the past, but it is a process that is ongoing right now. That from the moment you trusted Jesus Christ, the event of justification occurred and entered you into a process that we know as sanctification. In sanctification, you are becoming what you were declared to be in justification. God, they looked at you and he declared you not guilty, or in fact, he declared you righteous. Because through the blood of Jesus Christ that has forgiven you and cleansed you, you are, in a sense, before his eyes, in terms of status, righteous. And yet, if you know Jesus Christ and you're walking with Jesus Christ, your life doesn't always look that way, does it? And that's why you are, in a sense, being transformed and being made righteous. But it's an imperfect, ongoing process. The last stage we often talk about is glorification. It is the stage that comes in the future after death when the person who knows Jesus Christ is completely transformed into the image of Jesus, completely restored. Often we'll say that justification is being uh, removed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being removed from the power of sin and glorification is being removed from the presence of sin. And so as, as Paul here says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation. What stage of salvation is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about justification because it's a a done deal. I think what he's talking about is the stage that that they are in and that you are in now. If you know Jesus Christ, it's the stage of sanctification. It is the stage in which you are being transformed and changed in the likeness of Jesus Christ as you are becoming what you have been declared to be, which is righteous. You are being made righteous right now. And so what Paul says is that you are to work out your salvation or literally you are to take this gift of salvation and put it into motion or to utilize it or to exercise it. If I can take you back to the analogy of a car, it is like this. It is like your justification is God handing you a set of keys to a brand new, absolutely free car. Often probably a Lexus, right? Because it's that good of a gift, right? Uh, And God has handed you those keys of your justification, that stage of your salvation. And as you take the keys, engage the car, turn it on and take it off the lot of the dealership, you are now in the process of sanctification. You have put this salvation in a sense into motion. And so what Paul is saying is, as you put this thing into motion, there are certain ways that you are to do it. There are responsibilities that come even with the free gift. If you were to take off this afternoon uh, and maybe you were like me where your parents uh, have spoiled you and they've paid for everything and you had a free car in college, all right, that was me. Uh, If I went down Texas Avenue going 60 miles an hour and got pulled over uh, and a cop pegged me with a giant ticket, if I explained to the cop that, hey, this car is free, I didn't pay for it, therefore I'm not responsible for this fine, the cop would just laugh at me, right? Just because the gift was free and my reception of it does not mean in the exercise of the car, in the use of the car, there aren't responsibilities and even dangers as I drive and put this thing into motion. And so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to say, as you take this free gift of salvation and as you put it into motion, be careful how you do it. That's why he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think the idea being just because the free gift is free, don't be cavalier with it. Just because he's handed you a set of keys to a car that you did not pay for, but someone else paid for, particularly Jesus Christ, be careful as you drive this thing off the lot. Don't be cavalier with it just because you didn't pay for it and just because it was a free gift. Be careful with it. In fact, he's going to go on. He's going to say uh, with fear and trembling, and he goes on and he's going to call you and I to how you and I really handle this free gift of salvation. I think for many of us, 
You know, I, I don't think many of us are just absolutely cavalier with this gift. Uh, you know, there may be a few of us that think, hey, uh, Jesus has paid for heaven. I'm on, I'm on a route to heaven, so it doesn't really matter how I live. And so since I have heaven locked up, I might as well live like hell now, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't think many of us are in that spot. I think a lot of us really, uh, in gratitude for the free gift that he's granted us, want to honor him, want to live for him. And yet I'd say the fundamental experience that you and I all have is despite our desires to live for him, we often don't live up to what he has provided us. Despite what he's declared us to be, we often don't live that way. Despite what we know we ought to be, we often don't measure up. And so often we get, uh, we get discouraged, we get downpressed. We don't know, in a sense, how to live up to all that he's called us to. And ultimately, I think what Philippians 2 does this morning is he's going to answer the profound question that really we all hit. I think a lot of us may be like Paul in Romans 7, who says, For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Uh, I love, if you've been in big church, as, as Blake has been walking through the book of Romans, I love particularly Romans chapter 7. Paul will say, hey, uh, I have this desire to honor God and to walk with God, and yet often what I actually practically do is not at all what my heart longs to do. <laughs> In fact, Paul, in a sense, say in Romans 7, in a sense, I am a walking hypocrisy. (laughs) I am a walking internal civil war. That what I want to do, I don't pull off. I don't actually overcome and and follow through on what my heart is longing to do and what I know I ought to do. And I think a lot of us are like that, right? A lot of us are in that place where like, hey, I know I ought to be walking with Jesus. I ought to be living my life for Jesus. But for whatever reason, we often just don't live up to that. Or maybe a lot of us are in a spot where we're just struggling with a certain set of sins that are just reoccurring. We know we ought to live differently, but we just can't shake it. We just can't break it. So what, what is the secret? What, what is it that you and I are to do? I think Paul's going to come in with an incredibly dramatic statement here in Philippians 2. And notice what he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but notice the reason in verse 13 or even the means. For it is God who is at work in you. Check out verse 12. Paul's command to the Philippian church, I want you to work out your salvation. His response in verse 13, but it is God who's at work in you. So who's doing the work? The Philippians or God? Yes. <laughs> 12 is in a sense, a call for the Philippians to engage in the process. And yet a reminder that in verse 13, that even as they engage, there's someone who's working within them in the process. The only reason why you and I have a chance to live up to what God has called us to is because God is at work in us if we know Jesus Christ. Verses 12 and 13 are, in a sense, the very key thing that for me was absolutely revolutionary as I looked at the spiritual life in college. The idea that I was not in this thing in and of myself, and and I was completely responsible to live up to all that God had commanded me to. As we walk through the book of Philippians so far, chapters one and two, is, you know, uh, I feel like Paul is constantly calling the church and calling you and I to the grand commission of the gospel, uh, to the establishment of a kingdom on earth through human representation that God is using us to do incredible things. And even as we look through that in chapter one and chapter two, there's been a part of me that's been going, man, that is a grand giant task. <laughs> Why me? Why do you even want to use me? In fact, that's just too big for me. I'd rather just look at something a little bit smaller, a little bit something easier to get my hands around. And yet as Philippians 2 comes in, verses 12 and 13, I think it really provides a linchpin to the whole issue in our spiritual lives. Why are you and I so greatly struggling and so greatly not living up to what God has called us to? I think for many of us and for me in college, I didn't understand exactly what Paul was saying in verses 12 and 13. And that is what flipped my world upside down. 
What Paul is saying in verses 12 and 13 is that what you've been called to is not something that you have to pull off on your own. That ultimately what Christ has done was not just in a sense pay for your sins, but what Christ is even doing now is working within you so that you can accomplish what God has called you to accomplish. You are not in this thing in and of yourself and by yourself. So he says, work out your salvation for it is God who is in you. And what does that mean? What does it mean that he's in us? What is he doing? I think we're going to see there's, there's two basic things that God is doing when he's in us and he's working in us. One, he says he's in us both to will and to work. God's presence in us as we walk out the spiritual life is really twofold. He's doing two different things that you can measure and that you can experience. One is that he's at work in you to cause to you a will and a growing desire. I think ultimately what we're going to find is that there's a power source that you and I have available as God works in us that is changing us. And he's going to change us in two ways. One is that if you know Jesus Christ and you're trying to walk with Jesus Christ, as he works within you, he's changing your affections and he's changing your desires. Some of you guys may have came to Christ and came to believe in him for the first time and you may have just been utterly in a moment changed. Some of y'all, that was your case. Some of you, you came to Jesus Christ and you hit the highway and just went running full speed after Jesus and after the gospel and, and your whole heart was behind it. Some of you guys have had a different story. You, you came to Christ, but it's been years of God slowly but surely changing you and working in you. And what's fascinating about this process of sanctification is that as God is at work in you, he's absolutely changing your desires and your affections. Um, I've mentioned this before, but uh, both myself and even Tyler, who leads worship up here, uh, you won't catch us eating a lot of green things, all right? I absolutely hate vegetables, all right? Um, I can, Marcy can get a salad down me, and if you watch Tyler and I eat, we eat like four, four-year-olds, all right? We really do, all right? Um, so you can pray for our wives who have to cook for us and keep us alive for a lifetime, all right? Because we just hate that, which is healthy, okay? Just by our natures, okay? And, and I can tell you, uh, I think not just for uh, Marcy, but even for Sarah, as they've cooked for us and as they try to uh, help us, uh, you know, stay healthy, I can guarantee you at some point in time, they thought, if I could just change his taste buds, <laughs> If I could just get in there and change what he likes and what he likes to taste and what he enjoys. If I could just do that. The reality is our wives can't, right? No way in heck, all right? They can throw some feta on a salad and we get into it, all right? They can make it unhealthy and then we like it, all right? Uh, but by nature, they have, they're limited in their ability to change anything internally in us. And yet what God is going to do is not just change j- taste buds, but he's going to change the taste buds of our heart. The ability God has is you and I trust Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with him is that he's going to begin a a renovation project on our hearts and beginning to change our very affections and our very desires. In fact, he's going to say it uh, here in verse uh, 13 that he is at work in you both to will, meaning the desire or the want. And then we also get this idea all the way back in the Old Testament. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to this day when this kind of change would happen. And so while Israel is in uh, discipline, as Israel has failed yet again to obey God, as they failed yet again to live up to all that God wanted for them, uh, God then comes in a sense as they are in timeout. Uh, They have been exiled off the land that God had given them as a promise. And while they are in a sense in timeout, God comes to them. And notice what he says. Notice that he's not like an angry parent. Notice what he says to the nation, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant which you broke, although I was a husband to you. And so he says, hey, a day is going to come when I'm going to do something new for you. And it's going to be something completely new from whatever you've seen in the past. To the nation of Israel, he's saying, I'm going to make a new agreement with you that is different than the law, the Mosaic agreement. And if you're in his story, you're in our small group study, you guys are walking through these covenants right now. And this will really come in on that lesson for Tuesday night. But, but what he says through Jeremiah is this, hey, Uh, In the past, I gave you a set of laws and things I wanted you to do. Well, you have over and over again failed me. (laughs) 
in a sense, what he does here is he says uh, that you've broke them, although I was a husband to you. And I've kind of made this analogy before, but instead of coming and breaking up with the nation of Israel and saying, it's not you, it's me. In a sense, he doesn't break up with the nation and he says, it's not me, it's entirely you. You, you are the problem. <laughs> That is why you are suffering punishment. That's why you're being exiled. That's why you are suffering and struggling right now because you are the problem. And yet what God does here, instead of being an angry parent that just heaps abuse on them and just continues to ridicule them, he says, and so I'm going to fix you. <laughs> I'm going to bring about a change so that you can actually fulfill what I've called you to. So he goes on and he says, but this is the covenant which I will make. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. What is he saying through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel at the time? I think of what he's saying is that the very external law that was contained in all kinds of ordinances and on tablets of the Old Testament, what he's saying is a day is going to come when he's going to take that law, that revealed standard of commands and, and standard of righteousness. And what he says is, I'm going to take that and I'm going to write it on their hearts in the future so that it becomes an instinctive desire of their hearts. Giant change from Old Testament to New Testament. Not a change of justification salvation, but a change of how you and I walk with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they could not live up to what God had called them to. But for you and I, who've trusted in Jesus Christ, the, the indwelling spirit is coming within us. And what, what God is saying to the nation through the prophet Jeremiah is this, that that day is going to come, speaking of our day. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my law, my commands, and I'm going to not just put it on external tablets, but I'm going to write it actually on their hearts and put it within them so that it becomes the instinctive desire in their nature. I'm going to begin to change them in such a way that slowly but surely they're going to begin to love to eat broccoli. Ah, that'd be awesome, right? I'm, they're going to begin to love to worship me. They're going to begin to love to give their lives away. They're going to begin to love to serve men and women to live in humility. All the things that are completely contrary to our nature, uh, God is saying to the nation, a day is going to come when I'm going to begin to change the very heartbeat that you have. The very set of desires that you have. I'm going to come and I'm going to begin to slowly but surely change those. And yet Paul will go on further and he's going to say, it's not just that he's going to come and change our taste buds, but also he's going to begin to change really uh, the power source or our ability to obey. Notice this back in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. To will being that idea of desire that I'm going to make, I'm going to be in you in such a way that you're going to want to obey. And then secondly, I'm going to be in and working in you in such a way that you're going to be able to obey. It's not just that I'm going to change your heartbeat that you would want to obey me, but I'm going to begin to work in you in such a way and provide you a set of resources so that you can obey me. Uh, God spoke to the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy. He says, oh, I wish that they had a heart that they could obey me. You walk through the Old Testament, you see time and time again, the nation of Israel fails, not just because they didn't have a heart that was desirous to walk with God, but also because they just didn't have the resources to walk with God. In fact, again, in Ezekiel, we're going to find a parallel passage about the New Testament and, or about the New Covenant. And notice what God says now to the nation through the prophet Ezekiel. It's not just that I'm going to put my law within their heart, but he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's not just that God is changing the very heartbeat that we have and the set of desires and the loves that we have, but ultimately God is also changing the abilities that are present within us. In fact, Paul will say it like this and back in Romans 8, in Romans 7, Paul had said, hey, I'm, in a sense, I'm a walking kind of hypocrisy. <laughs> the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I know I should do, I don't do. Uh, and, and he ends chapter 7 saying, how am I going to be set free from this situation? Uh, and really, so, chapter 7 is a setup for chapter 8, where the answer comes in chapter 8. And it's going to re reek of the law and refer back to the law as well. Romans 8. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So that the requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What is Paul saying in Romans 8? What the law could not do, a couple things that it could not do. It could not justify us. The law could not forgive us of sin. Secondly, the law could not make and enable you and I to obey. The law told the nation of Israel what they were supposed to do, but it did not enable them to actually perform and follow through on it. And that is profoundly and fundamentally different than what the day that you and I live in. It's not just that Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins, but he's moving and he's working within us in such a way through his indwelling spirit that he's changing our heartbeat and our desires and he's also changing our ability to obey. I think for so many of us, we have no idea how to actually, in a sense, lean upon that engine. Really, the engine that drives the entirety of our spiritual life is not self-will. It is not self-strength. It is dependence and reliance on the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that really is the engine that drives the entirety of our spiritual life. The only way that you can live up to what God has called you to is as the Spirit of God is at work in you, not just to will it, but to work it and to enable it. I think for so many of us, we have no idea how to lean and how to rely on the Spirit of God. What does it look like to actually walk according to the Spirit? That, that is revolutionary for so many of us. Um, I had, had a, one of our college pastors at our Anderson campus a few years ago put together a giant swing set, play set for his girls. And so a few years ago, he invited one of our interns over, I guess maybe a slave labor, I don't know, all right? Um, and, and as it went on, and the reason why I say that, uh, not to be demeaning toward an intern is, but I say that because uh, Matt couldn't actually find any power tools, all right? So there were hundreds of screws and bolts that they had to tighten and fasten and build this play set with not one power tool available. So do you know what they did for eight hours? Hand crank, all right? The entire play set, all right? So for eight hours, they constructed this thing with hand cranking uh, a screwdriver. Phillips had all that kind of stuff. And by the end of the eight hours, they had not finished the task, obviously. And they had hand cramps for like a week, all right? Uh, They were just miserable, all right? And actually, at the end of the day, all of a sudden, Matt finally found the power screwdriver, all right? A day late and a dollar short, right? It's just miserable, all right? And yet, I think so many of us are like that, okay? I think so many of us don't realize that there is the Spirit of God that is like a massive power screwdriver for the task that God has for us. And we don't know how to locate it or we don't know how to use it. And so instead, we just hand crank. I think so many of us are absolutely exhausted in the spiritual life because we're relying on the wrong set of resources. And so what I want to do this morning is simply ask you guys, as we look at this idea and this concept, is I want to, in a sense, give you guys a diagnostic test of your engine, all right? And I want to do it, in a sense, by two questions. As you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and as you try to respond to the things he's called you to, and when you fail, how do you, how do you respond? When you fall short of what he's called you to, how do you feel and how do you respond? Or flip it around and ask, uh, in the midst of what he's called you to, when you are victorious and you are able to follow through on what he's called you to, how do you respond? I will tell you there are a few clues that occur when you are responding out of the wrong set of resources. Uh, When you respond to failure with absolute exhaustion and overwhelmed feeling of not, not being able to live up to it, or you respond to victory and pride and sense of accomplishment, you are responding out of the wrong set of resources. That when you feel absolutely exhausted in your failures and you feel completely prideful in your victories, you've leaned on not the spirit of God, but you've leaned on self-strength and self-dependency. There is a spiritual life that is driven out of self-strength. And when we fail, it looks like that. And when we're victorious, it looks like that. 
when you fail out of self-strength, you are absolutely exhausted because you've been working so hard and you just can't live up to what God has called you to. And then if you're actually working that hard and you actually pull it off, guess what then happens? You want, you want to pat yourself on the back and say, bravo, bravo, right? When we fail and we're exhausted or we are victorious and we're prideful, that is self-reliance. That is not spirit reliance. And so what do we do? How do we handle that? How do we actually rely on the spirit of God? I think what Paul is going to do really in the next few verses is provide us in a sense, two warning lights that can in a sense show us when we're beginning to rely on the wrong set of resources. And then one last, in a sense, gauge that will, I think really tie us back to the question of, well, then how do we rely on the spirit of God? If when I fail and I'm exhausted or I'm victorious and I'm really prideful, and if that means I'm relying on the wrong set of resources, then how could I have known prior? Or or how could I actually ensure that maybe I'm uh, setting up the right set of resources and relying on the spirit and not on self? What does that look like? That's exactly where Paul goes in the next few verses. And so look with me really as he takes us from the engine to the dashboard. All right. Uh, Verse 14. And so after this weighty uh, two verses, Paul then says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, We'll come back to verses 12 and 13, but I think they're absolutely revolutionary, which is why we just spent almost 30 minutes on two verses, all right? We don't have that much time for the rest of this passage, so we're going to kind of truck through it. But it was odd to me all week wrestling through this. You have this giantly rich two verses, and then Paul comes on the heels of that with, don't grumble or complain. (laughs) It's kind of let down, you know? It's kind of accepting something far more spiritual, right? Uh, Something far more challenging, but don't grumble or complain. (laughs) What is Paul doing? What is Paul saying? Uh, if this is a warning light, then what is it a warning light of? What is it a highlighting of? If I were to ask you this morning, uh, what are the areas in your life that you often find yourself mumbling under your breath or complaining? Uh, Is it in school? Uh, Is it underneath an authority figure? Uh, Is it because of some legitimate injustice? Or is it just because sometimes out of trivial inconvenience? What is it and where is it that you often find yourself grumbling and complaining? And then let me ask you guys in the midst of that spot, wherever that spot is, why are you grumbling and complaining? What has caused you to grumble and complain? At least typically for me, what I find is that what has moved me to that spot is that I'm just upset that things are not bent toward my direction, that, that my needs are not being met, and that really grumbling and complaining is all about a selfish orientation and agenda that I want my needs met and they're not being met. I think really what Paul is doing here in verse uh, 14 is highlighting this issue of humility again. Uh, The theme of humility has really been driving all of chapter two. And I think as he comes back to this concept, he's going to hit it one more time and saying, hey, in order for the engine of the spirit of God to propel you forward in the spiritual life, this issue of humility has got to be checked. If humility is driving your, or if uh, selfishness is driving your engine in your life, then you're not going to land in the spot that God would have for you. And the spirit of God cannot work in your life. If life is all about you and how you see in relationships and how you see circumstances cause you to grumble and complain, then often it's because it's all about us. And then the spirit of God has a hard time bringing influence and controlling our actions and our thoughts when it's all about us. Really, I think what Paul does here real quickly, and then he's going to move on uh, to a new topic, is really hit this issue of humility again uh, through the lens or through the uh, felt symptom of grumbling and complaining. I couldn't help this week but think back to the nation of Israel again in the Old Testament. Some of you guys know the story. There are 400 years in Egyptian slavery. God miraculously uh, uh, frees them from Egypt uh, through the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. And then they land in the desert where for a little bit of time it, it looks like uh, they're not sure where they're headed. They're not sure of God. They're not sure of God's provision. And they actually begin to grumble and complain. And they begin to actually think that maybe God has brought them out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert. 
In the midst of all they just saw that God had done, it's just a few short moments and a few short experiences before they've really, in a sense, taken all that they had seen God do, shuttle it away, grumble and complain. And really what ends up happening for that generation is they miss out on what God had. That generation that grumbles and complains ends up dying in the wilderness and God is going to bring a new generation into the promised land, the land and the plan that he had for them. And I think for us, as we grumble and complain, I think the really, the, the rub is, as you grumble and complain in certain situations and settings and as your world is navigated and set on self, you may actually end up missing the hand and the plan of God. In those arenas that you're grumbling and complaining, you may actually not be able to see and respond to what God is doing and how he may be directing things. For the nation of Israel, as they grumbled and complained, they missed out on his plan and they missed out on his hand. They had just seen it and yet as they begin to grumble and complain, they lose sight of it yet again even as he begins to provide the manna and provides them miraculously, even in the wilderness. Grumbling, complaining, I think, while on first blush seems a little bit superficial, and yet it is quite a good symptom of a deep issue, this issue of humility again. So I think Paul hits it one more time as a, in a sense, a warning light on the dashboard, and then he's going to move to another warning light. Look at what he says next, verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Again, what is, what is Paul calling them to here? What is the warning light in a sense that he's trying to show them on the dashboard? He says, I want you to be innocent. I want you to be pure. I want you to be children above reproach. I think the issue that Paul is hitting here is the issue of purity. I think the second warning light that he wants to hit for us, it's not just the one of humility, but it's also the one of purity. And notice though the purpose of it. Why does he want us to walk in purity? Notice the imagery that ensues next. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The purpose of our purity is that we would be distinct and that we would shine in the world. And that as we compromise our purity, our inability to stand different and to set apart from the world uh, is very much lessened. Uh, To actually stand apart from the world, you and I have to look different and we have to stand in contrast to the world. In fact, that's why Paul will say in, in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That really purity is another warning light that really can weaken our ability to walk with Jesus Christ. If the spirit of God is the engine that drives us, what happens when impurity is found and is lived out in our life? Uh, When you and I begin to make decisions that compromise our purity and our integrity, honestly, what happens is that in a sense, we disengage the spirit of God as the engine. We, in a sense, we jump in the steering wheel, jump in the driver's seat and begin to take the car into new directions and into new places that God never intended this salvation, this car to go. And so I want to ask you even this morning, as we look at that issue Uh, What are the arenas of your life? If you feel exhausted this morning, (laughs) if you feel unable to engage in worship, if you feel unable and and desirous to even read the word, if you find in yourself something just that just feels so distant from God, let me just ask you, are there arenas in your life that you've taken this car, this salvation and pulled it off on a side road? Is is this gift in this car in a sense in 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 a ditch on the highway somewhere? Where is it that maybe you've gotten in the driver's seat and taken this thing in a direction that God never intended? I'm just going to ask you honestly, is it a lie that maybe you're maintaining <laughs> and that it's getting more difficult to maintain it because you have to continue to construct even greater and greater, more complex webs around it to maintain that lie. And it's getting incredibly complex now. Or maybe for you, it's a relationship that you're in that is going in directions and things are happening that you know shouldn't happen. And instead of it being a place of life, it's become a place of shame and of guilt what do you do? Uh, you've taken this car into an area, into a direction that God did not intend. And so what do you do? 
Maybe for you, it's uh, elements of your body. You're making decisions with your body uh, that are, are things that you can't even control. And maybe your body is controlling you and controlling your decisions despite whatever affections and desires you have. What do you do? I think whether it's purity or whether it's humility, what we do and how we respond to those failures is simply confession. <laughs> uh, when we rely on the spirit of God, our response is confession. If you're in those spots this morning where maybe whether it's selfishness or whether it's just impurity, you've landed in a spot where you know, hey, God never intended my vehicle, my life to go this direction, but I'm here. Uh, sometimes we're tempted just to keep going on further because we think we can never turn back. The reality is, no, you, you totally can. Uh, remember the free gift of salvation that you got was not on the basis of what you had or hadn't done. It was on the basis of what Christ had done. And it is not on the basis of what you do or don't do in the future that ever determines whether you can keep that gift. It was given to you freely on the basis of what Christ has done. And so no matter where you've been, even after you got those keys to that car, you can always come back. He's always waiting and he's always welcome. And his grace is always overbounding over wherever we have been. As deep as our shame may be, his grace always overflows over that, just as we sang this morning. I don't care how deep your shame is, his grace always extends over and it always covers and he always welcomes us back. Even more so, it's not just that he welcomes us back, but he wants us to have a chance to walk with him again in such a way that we find our hearts beginning to change and we find access to resources that enable us to walk victoriously. I think the reason for me, while some of this was so powerful for me in college, was that I thought that certain battles with sin that there was no way out of them. I thought there were certain things that you would just struggle with all your lifetime and there's no way to actually break free from it. Throughout all of high school and through much of college, I just struggled with insecurity. I thought there's no way I could break out of that. I would be at a party, I'd be in a social setting, and I would never talk. I was so afraid that someone would judge me. I was so afraid I wouldn't fit in through high school and, there, and then even through parts of college. And it really was a sense as I walked through elements of this passage and elements in the book of Romans where I realized that you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, are not slaves to sin any longer. It's not just that we're not slaves to the penalty of sin, but Christ right now is working so that you and I can find freedom from whatever sins that we struggle with and from wherever you've been. And he's slowly but surely working so as to change your heart so that you would desire the things of him and desire to walk in righteousness and begin to find the ability to walk in the strength and the resources that he's provided through the spirit of God that is your engine that drives you to be all that God has called you to be and drives you to follow through on all that he's called you to do. That's really where Paul ends this section as we wrap up this morning is he's going to end it really with one last, and since I think, gauge on the spiritual dashboard. Two warning lights, humility and purity that you and I have to watch for those and address those. And when they get out of whack, we just respond in confession and we respond in dependence. And when we fail, we don't have to be exhausted. We don't have to be overwhelmed because he welcomes us back. And then ultimately, how do we respond even in victories? We give him the great thanks because he has provided us the resources to be victorious as he works within us. And so he gives us one last gauge that I think highlights for us how we respond and rely on the spirit of God. Notice he says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. I think verse 16 really is the gauge on the dashboard that shows you the relative strength of the engine, the relative dependency you have on the engine of the spirit of God working and propelling you in the spiritual life. What does it mean to hold fast the word of life? Again, it gets the idea, the imagery of no matter what's going on all around us, that we are holding on to that which is most precious I think it is the word of God that it provides us not just a, a written record of uh, biblical history, but it is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that is piercing as far as the vision of, of joint and marrow that is able to penetrate our lives, to speak to us, and to ultimately transform us. 
that as you have a, a, a relationship with God and as you walk with God and as you're rooted in the word of God, what happens is the same thing that Paul says at the end of Romans 12, verse 2. Notice, don't be conformed to this world. Be pure. Walk in distinction so that you can shine how? Uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is the renewing of the mind in the word of God that brings about transformation, that brings about conviction, and that brings about the opportunity to rely on the spirit of God to influence us, to control our thoughts, to control our actions, and control our heartbeat. That as we walk in the word of God, it's fascinating the connection that comes as we are influenced by the spirit of God. In fact, really, I think the gauge here is really one of orthodoxy. Not that you and I maintain all the right doctrines, but that you and I maintain a devotional life that's in and rooted in the word of God. In fact, as a little piece of homework for you guys, I want you guys, to, uh, this afternoon or this week, I want you guys to compare Ephesians five nineteen to 21 with Colossians three sixteen to 17. And as you do that, what's fascinating about those two passages is that Paul will call uh, those two audiences to two different things, but that lead to, to the same exact results. In Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about being filled with the Spirit of God, allowing the Spirit of God to influence and relying on the Spirit of God. And then in Colossians 3, he's going to call us to let the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. Fascinating. Be influenced by the Spirit of God. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell. And if both are happening, then they have the same exact results. That to walk with the Spirit of God means and is and a gauge for that is as you are in the Word of God. That as the word of God is dwelling within you, you will be influenced and led and directed by the spirit of God. Those are not two mirroring or different uh, ideas. That to be spontaneous, to be filled with the spirit, to walk with God is something that is not about being in the word of God. That's not true at all. That to be filled with the spirit of God means to be filled with the word of God. Those go hand in hand, step in step with one another. So I want to challenge you as we pull off from this morning and as we have a chance to jump into another week, Uh, No matter wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, let me challenge you to respond to confession if you're in a place where you realize, hey, my spiritual life isn't all that I want it to be. Confess that to the Lord, but don't be overwhelmed. Don't be exhausted by that. And if you're absolutely exhausted because you've been trying so hard, then you're realizing, then you need to realize that you're relying on the wrong set of resources, the wrong set of strengths and and capabilities to, to do what God has called you to do. That in the garage, so to speak, there's an engine that drives this thing that is the spirit of God. And that as we walk in the word of God, we come and interact with the spirit of God that moves us, convicts us, transforms us, and leads us as we're rooted in the word of God. Like this passage, it really kind of ends as Paul moves on from here. And he's going to say that basically his joy is this, that, that, that this church would continue on in the route and in a sense finish what Paul envisions for them and what in a sense Jesus Christ envisions for them. Ultimately, Paul's concern is that, in a sense, their spiritual life, if it were a car, they would end up on a highway and never get to the destination that God intended for it. Or that it would pull off onto a side road and go in a direction that God never intended. And so Paul's concern, as he looks at them and he pops the hood and as he shows them the dashboard, is that he wants them to continue to trek further on uh, in the direction and down the road that God intends for them. So they would eventually reach the destination that God ultimately has for them. We say this to you guys all the time. My concern and my hope for you guys isn't just that you would walk with God in college. My hope for you guys is the same as Paul will say for the Philippian church is that you guys in a sense would walk with God for a lifetime. I'm not so concerned if you're so zealous right now. Maybe you're not so zealous because maybe right now you're just struggling and that's fine. But wherever, wherever you are, you're building patterns in your life right now that will determine whether you will walk with Jesus for a lifetime. And that's what we want to see happen. As you're rooted in the word of God as you're learning to love others more than self, and as you're learning to live not in conformity to the world, but in distinction from the world in purity. 
And as you do that, and as you rely on the spirit of God, the spirit begins to provoke and propel you to be all that God intended you to be and to take you into places that he intended you to be and where you were to be and to be all that he has and, and to land in the destination that he has for you eventually. That's our hope for you guys, that you'll walk with him for a lifetime as you walk with him and as you lean on him and as you uh, draw deeper to him. So let me pray for you guys this morning. Father God, I thank you for this passage this morning. I thank you for um, just the incredible truth um, that we are not like the nation of Israel, um, that you have provided us a set of resources and that you are working within us in a way uh, so distinct and so different than the Old Testament. Um, that you've called us not just to an outward set of commands, but you've, uh, you're working so as to change our very heartbeat, to love those things that you've called us to, and then in order to also be enabled to do those things you've called us to. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to see that in, in, a, in a new light this morning. That if we're in that place that we're just exhausted by this thing and we just wonder sometimes whether we want to continue on, Lord, I pray that you would refresh us. Pray that you would encourage us, even if we're in a ditch somewhere, um, that you are going to work to not just transform us, but to free us from whatever ditches we've fallen into. And I pray that you give us great hope, that you give us great encouragement, that it is not just up to us to live up to all that you've called us to, but you are working now, not just to redeem us, but to restore us, to rejuvenate us, to transform us, to be all that you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to become those that are more in touch with, more in step with your spirit, that are able to rely on his resources and on his strength, and that we would walk with him, and that we'd walk with you for a lifetime, Father. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week.